0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Becoming Better, the podcast dedicated to helping you become a better human being. I'm the host of this year's show, Chris Bailey. This is episode number one, and today we've got Cal Newport on the show. So, before we dig into this episode, which is a good one. I'm excited for this one. Cal's a friend. He's a fellow author in the productivity space. I wanted to lay the framework for what I'm thinking for the podcast. So I'm thinking that each episode of this show, and again, everything can change based on the feedback that you provide to chris at alifeofproductivity.com. Just shoot me an email. I'm reading it all. I'm digesting it all. And I'm using that to make the show Better because the show can become better too. Uh, so each episode will be one of two formats either an interview with an author who's written a book about becoming better in some way, or somebody who's uh, in this space and has this mindset of be constantly improving and becoming better, or it'll be a conversation with my co host, who I will introduce to you next week. I'll keep that under wraps for who that'll be, but I think you'll be excited. They are the best possible co-host that I could imagine doing this podcast with. I, I would not want to do this show with anybody else in the world, uh, but we'll get to that next week. I, I think in the business they call this a, a cliffhanger. This week's episode is one of my favorite conversations that I've, that I've had with, with anybody. It's, it's with author Cal Newport. And before I introduce Cal... I want to mention the audio quality is about a 7 out of 10. I I want to get the audio quality up to an 8, then a 9. It's always hard doing remote interviews, but I just want to mention that much like the rest of the things in the podcast, the audio quality will become better too. Uh, Cal Newport, uh, it's possible. It won't annoy you, but it's not as good as what you're hearing right now. Cal Newport is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University. And he's the author of six books that have been published in around 20 different languages. And that includes Deep Work and So Good, They Can't Ignore You. Um, So I've trimmed our conversation a bit. So we'll dive into a part of the conversation where we're chatting about the two worlds that he occupies, the one where he's this quiet, uh, but yep very productive computer science professor and the one in which he writes books that go on to become best-selling international Sensations essentially. So, join me in conversation right now with the one, the only, the handsome, the miraculous, the wonderful, the lovely, Cal Newport. Do you think that these two worlds? that you occupy, the the secret world of Cal Newport where you're uh, this bespoke uh, university professor and and the very public Cal Newport where you're writing articles in the New York Times and books that go on to be bestsellers in in that same newspaper and are published uh, all around the world. Do you think these two worlds uh, are at odds with one another? Do you think they inform one another
1: or do you think there's much connection between them? I see them as informing One another. I mean, the way I like to put it is, you know, I'm a technologist in my day job, computer scientist, who also writes about the impact of technology on society. And that makes sense to me. I mean, there's a lot of voices we need to do technocriticism. And some of those voices probably should be people who who have their foot in the tech world. And actually, a lot of those voices right now, if you look at the names that are shaking things up or, or having bold thoughts about technology and how it's impacting our society... A lot of these names really are coming out of people who are either in tech or used to be in tech. So you have like Roger McNamee has this new book out called Zucked. He was one of the uh, you know original investors in Facebook, and now he regrets that. Jaron Lanier, one of my favorite thinkers on this. I mean, hardcore computer scientist from the fathers of virtual reality. is uh, at Microsoft Research right now doing hardcore computer science. He's all over this criticism. Douglas Rushkoff, who I really admire. I mean, he was a real early guy on the early cyberspace, early internet, like one of the guys that understood the potential. So... A lot of the interesting stuff is coming out of people who have their feet in that world. Do you think a lot of people are making that
0: same jump where they're going from being excited about technology to thinking, oh, crap, maybe this isn't all
1: good. Maybe maybe there are costs on how addictive these products are like Facebook. It definitely seems to be happening. Uh, Really, over the last couple of years, it's picked up steam. Uh, So a lot of people are... I guess it's just a cycle right? So we had a lot of these technological breakthroughs post the first internet boom. So we had the first internet boom and bust in the late 90s, early 2000s, which was really e-commerce focused. And then we had the first crash, which happened right around... you know, 9-11 helped instigate it. But in the, the first years of the, the new millennia, we had the, the first dot-com crash. And then it was rebuilt after that, the sort of stock market bubble around The internet in particular was rebuilt around social and around attention platforms. And that cycle is basically now just getting to its nadir, where, okay, it was exciting, it was exuberant, a lot of money was made. And now people are stepping back and saying, okay, maybe it's worth a a closer look. The the side effects are becoming hard to miss. Yeah, because the,
0: um, the, the central thesis of Digital Minimalism, the, the book that you have, is that we should use technology deliberately. We, we should carefully select the activities and, and make those activities that we do in the digital world support the things that we value and then happily miss out on everything else. And, and one of the things that I took away from your book is that there's just so much that make these products addictive. But what I love that you did is that you really zero in on the factors that make it Um, addictive, platforms like Facebook, platforms like uh, just email platforms in general. So what what are those factors? You mentioned two of
1: them in the book. Right. Well, in the book, I I talk about uh, our drive for social approval and the power of intermittent reinforcement as two staples of behavioral psychology that were exploited by the social media platforms to try to get more compulsive use. Uh, But even stepping back, I think The bigger point about those, and I think this is something worth uh, emphasizing, is that this model in which we constantly look at our phones, we've come to accept that this is somehow just fundamental to the technology. That, yeah, if you're going to have ubiquitous wireless internet and these powerful computers in your pocket, Like, of course, you're going to look at them all the time. But when you you research the topic closer, it turns out there's nothing fundamental about that. In fact, that behavior was largely contrived. Facebook took the lead, but then other companies followed suit. It was largely contrived by a small number of companies who needed that type of compulsive use to get their revenue numbers where, where, where they had to be. And so I try to separate these two things. The big, the big attention economy conglomerates want it just to be all melded together, like technology and the internet and smartphones and, and the constant use is all just the same thing. And so either you reject that whole thing and go to your cabin, or you just uh, accede and say, okay, it's fine. This is, just, this is just the times we live in. But what they don't want us to realize is actually there's nothing fundamental about these technologies that requires us to look at the phone all the time. And they actually had to engineer that behavior and this is where they started exploiting psychological vulnerabilities. They re-engineered the whole social media experience to try to induce us to do that. And so what's arbitrary here is not stepping back and saying, how do I want to use tech or maybe be a little bit more minimalist? What's arbitrary is actually the way that most people use the devices today. That's actually the strange thing. Uh, it's not fundamental. It's just a business model being instantiated on the society writ large. You, you call it the constant companion model. Yeah. And that was constructed. I mean, Facebook was not getting nearly the revenue they needed for their IPO to get the return that the early investors expected. They had to significantly increase their revenue. And they knew mobile made that possible because people had their mobile devices with them all day long, but they didn't know how to get people to keep looking at it because Facebook was a very static experience before that. I mean, if you ch- if you checked it in the morning... I mean, unless one of your friends came back from vacation or posted some new photos or their relationship status changed, there's no reason to check it again that afternoon. But that's a disaster when you have to do 100x return to your initial investors, right? And so they had to figure out systematically, how do we get people to do something that they've never done before, which is look at the phone 100 times a day. And that's where they started getting into psychology. And that's where they started doing attention engineering. And that's when they shifted us without really asking our permission, shifted us to this new mode of constant companion interaction with our devices.
0: So Facebook is one company that you mentioned being a, a particularly... Uh, aggressive offender in this area. I think you mentioned in the book that we spend uh, upwards of 50 minutes a day on various Facebook products. And they have quite a few of them, don't they? That, that kind of hijack our attention. There's WhatsApp, there's Instagram, there's uh, the Facebook app itself. Uh, are there any other offenders that, that you came across in your research or that... Did, do you think we should just look at what we pay attention to on our phone over the course of the day and think,
1: okay, maybe the things I pay attention to are the bad offenders? Uh, or even even question the model that we need to be checking things on our phone, right? I mean, let's put aside, let's say there's some value you get out of a particular social media platform, let's say like a professional value or, or a, a social connection value. The idea that it needs to be on your phone, even, that it's something that you need to check throughout the day, questioning evening that, like this air traffic controller model, like I have to be monitoring all this information coming in all day and sending all this information out there. I mean, that's all largely contrived. And you know the digital minimalists I study for my book, a lot of them use social media in very specific ways. Almost none of them have it on their phone. Um, I mean, that was the transformation that the social media companies made. They taught us to be on our phone and looking at constantly, again, for revenue reasons. But there's actually very little real value that comes to the users from having that type of constant engagement. Yeah, and this is another thing that I
0: took from the book is that there, there are so many unexpected costs that, that we don't really step back to consider of just being constantly connected. I know two of them that you mentioned, uh, less solitude and more anxiety. Can, can you talk a little bit
1: about those? And and those two almost certainly go together. Yeah. So, I mean, solitude, this became clear in my research that solitude is really important for Humans to flourish. And by solitude, I'm using a definition I got from another book called Lead Yourself First. I love this definition. Yeah, it's uh, freedom from input from other minds. So nothing to do with physical isolation and everything to do about what your mind is processing. If it's processing something that was created from another mind, you're not in solitude. If it's not, if it's just alone with its own thoughts, you are in solitude. And so if you're on top of a mountain, but you're checking a feed on your phone or listening to a podcast and you're not in solitude at that moment. If you're in a crowded subway car, but you're just there looking around thinking you are in solitude. And the important finding that that I came across as I was working on the book is that we need that on a regular basis. Now, of course, if you're always in a state of solitude, you're going to be very lonely. It's not great, right? (laughs) That's why solitary confinement is a terrible thing if you're in prison. But on the flip side, if you take every last ounce of solitude out of your day. So you just don't have these occasional moments where it's just you alone with your thoughts, and your brain's recharging. It seems to cause real anxiety. The brain is not used to that. Solitude deprivation is what you call it. Yeah. And so this is one of the dangers of this constant companion model that the social media companies helped engineer is that for the first time in human history, it made it relatively easy to banish all solitude from your life. And I think this is causing an anxiety crisis uh, in our culture.
0: Hmm. How does that anxiety manifest itself?
1: Well, universities is where we first started to notice this issue. And it's, I guess, Gen Z is probably the right way to think about it. They're born starting around the mid-90s, depending on, uh, or early to mid-90s, depending on how you define it. But the key thing with Gen Z is that by the time they get to their early adolescence, we have widespread smartphone penetration. So they're the first generation that starting their young teenage years have access to smartphones and social media. Uh, millennials like you and me, we didn't have it at our teenage years. A lot of this stuff came a little bit uh, came a little bit later, and so Gen Z has been connected since you know they're able to be connected, and they're having huge issues with anxiety. I mean, the first place I really heard this was on college campuses. I was talking to the head of mental health services at a major university, and she said, "Oh, it's been crazy. It was like night and day. We went from the normal mix of the normal types of mental issues you would see in the population at large." And suddenly, like overnight, it was all anxiety and anxiety-related disorders. Wow. And not only that, but it was a multiple more people coming in with issues than they'd ever uh, seen before. You know, this was a few years ago. And I asked her, I was like, well, what's going on? And she didn't even hesitate. She said smartphones. So on the front lines, they could see it. Uh, now we have a lot of data to back that up. Uh, you know, Gen Z, is, is the most connected generation is, is having this literally off-the-chart spikes in anxiety and anxiety-related disorders I say off the charts because the demographers have never seen a jump so big from one generation to another in any of the attributes that they study, and so it really was off their charts. They've never seen such a big change in such a short amount of time, and almost certainly the, the variable that, that's causing this is: did you have access to smartphones and social media starting in your young teenage years or not? When you when you hear about that that jump, do you get sad for for that generation? How do you feel? Well, it's it's been terrible for them. Um, but they're not happy with it either. And this makes me a little optimistic. I mean, when I'm on the road promoting digital minimalism, for example, some of the feedback I'm getting is that young people themselves are starting to revolt. I mean, they're not happy about this. They, they don't want to just sit in their room and, and keep up on Snapchat streaks, which is the big thing right now I, um, in terms of what, what they're doing and, and constantly being on SMS. It, it, they feel anxious. They're not sleeping. Uh, it's, it, they don't feel good about it, and so they want to change too. It, they they want to they want an alternative. They're looking for alternatives. They're they're looking for you know how else how else can we how else can we go, you know live our social lives without having to to constantly be mediating everything through a digital interface. And so I'm optimistic. I don't think anyone is happy about this situation. You talk to any parent or any teenager, and they're not surprised to hear these statistics. They see it everywhere. They see it around them. They see it in their own lives. And so I think a change is coming. And I think that's one of the places we're going to see a big change early on is with the young people because they're having the worst effects. Well, this is what's awesome about the book is you know just by
0: publishing a book by the name of Digital Minimalism, where you talk about these ideas, you know, you give a name to that movement of people who want to take that step back, who realize, okay, this is actually, you know, I'm on Tinder swiping all day, but I'm not really happy, even even though it's a very stimulating app, or or I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on on Instagram. It's awesome that there's a name for this, Um, and I love more than that, you know, one, one of my favorite ideas from the book is the digital declutter where you uh, take a step back from the digital distractions that you have for 30 days. So any distraction that wouldn't cause harm or uh, big disruption if they're not removed. And so I'm doing this. I've started this on Monday and I'm going to try to rope my fiance into doing this with me. Maybe she'll come on a later Podcast episode and talk about it. Um, you know, no YouTube for this month. No Instagram. No social media apps on my phone. No email. No online news. No games on my phone. No checking the uh, book sales. You know that. You know us authors. You know we're always refreshing. No checking Feedly and, and modifying a couple of these. So um, only doing email three times a day and replacing these with kind of um, you know other things because this is another thing that, that you talk about that we need a substitute. For these different activities, or else we 're just kind of uh, c- kind of get restless and so uh, you know I started taking improv classes this week i 've painting uh, stuff on my desk that has been in the closet in my office for quite some time, but i 'm hoping to dig it out soon um, so this this idea of the digital declutter what would you say you know probably if somebody 's feeling anxious or somebody feels like they don't have much solitude or time for their own thoughts, it's probably a good sign that they should take one. Do you think there are others? Or do you think this is something that everybody on the planet should do? Uh, Everybody who
1: thinks they spend too much time on their phone? Well, it's remarkably effective. And w- which, which is why I have it in the book. I mean I, I write advice, but my books don't normally have things like a 30 day plan you know, <laughs> for, for whatever, right? That's not really my style, but in this case. Well uh, on the surface, if I may be frank, you know a digital
0: declutter or digital detox, it seems gimmicky. Yeah, but then you then you actually like look at what it is and it's okay, you're stepping back from all these things that on the surface, you know don't make you happy and that are actually deeply addictive because of the reasons that you mentioned.
1: And maybe it's worth doing something, no matter what the name of it is. Well, what I, yeah, what I found was almost nothing else works. And that's that's why I, I ended up having it in there is because I was out here trying a lot of things with a lot of people and the small tips weren't working. Let's nibble around the edges. Let's, let's adjust our notifications. Let's just change our mental schema. Let's have you know better intentions about how to use our technology. Like this wasn't working. Let's turn our phone screen black and white. Yeah. Like <laughs> these tips are everywhere. It wasn't working, but this does. And, and it, for whatever reason, I, I don't know what it is. The, what elements of this come together right to make it work, but, but how you described it, it seems like nothing short of that really works. But when you do all the pieces you're talking about, which is you're stepping away for a non-trivial period of time, like 30 days, and that you're not just detoxing, but that you are aggressively trying to figure out what I want to do instead. You're actually discovering, experimenting with, and implementing the alternatives, the higher quality alternatives for using your time. And then when the 30 days are over you consider yourself as starting from a blank slate. So instead of saying, okay, now now I've, I've done my detox, so let me go back to everything I was doing before, which I think is a crazy notion. You say, okay, I'm at a blank slate. Now, when things come along that I might want to add back in, I can have a really high bar and say, first, is this going to really help something I value? And then two, if it passes that bar, say, great, but what are my rules for how I use it? Which is actually where 90% of the benefit, the digital minimalist uh, experience actually comes from that second question. Not just, okay, I need to use Instagram. It's okay, but do I really need to have it on my phone? No, actually on my desktop 30 minutes a week, I can get all the value out of it. Uh, So it's a little... It it sounds gimmicky. It's not the type of stuff I write about, but I really recommend it. (laughs) This is my experience working on this book. It's really hard... And it's incredibly effective. People come out of the other end of this thing. I ran 1,600 people through this experiment last year. People come out on the other end of this thing, and it's a different life. And I, I guess if you're going to have a really big transformation, it shouldn't be surprising that you have to do something big to spark the, the transformation. But you know, I, I've done a lot of interviews where, where people say, Yeah, but what are the small tips? Like, Can we get just like the three things we can do? And I, I often just come back and say, You can do things to get in shape for your declutter. But ultimately, you have to do something like the declutter. I mean, if you're someone who finds that you're looking at your screen more than you know is useful or healthy, if you've commonly been in scenarios where you're looking at a screen, even though you could be doing something else, it's taking away from something else, you know in that moment would be much more valuable. You still can't help yourself from looking at the screen. You're with your spouse, but you're not talking. You're with your kids, that you're looking at something stupid on you know, baseball trade rumors on Twitter <laughs> or something like this, right? You need something like this to make the change. And so I, I, uh, I put it in. And I I swear by it and I'm preaching it. Yeah, let's get the gimmicks. Let's get our... Let's get them going. Let's get our merry condo on, right? Yeah,
0: let's condo on, bro. Let's, um, let's condo on, yeah. Oh, man. I gotta regret saying that. Let's condo on, bro. there's um, <laughs> a t-shirt right there. Yeah, geez. Yeah, the first t-shirt for the podcast is now available on Teespring. No, please, God, let's help us all. Um, so, do you have any tips for, for doing one of these digital declutters with somebody? So, uh, you know, I'm doing it with my fiance. You know, we, we're st- she's starting up soon. I started earlier this week. But maybe you have a family and you want to do a declutter with
1: them. Maybe you have a partner you want to do a declutter with them. Well, it, it, it's helpful if you do have something to do it with. That it, it actually can make it easier, uh, especially if you work together on the key part of what are we going to do instead. And that's the main place where I saw people struggle with the declutter is those who treated it like a white knuckle detox struggled. right? If they just said, okay, I just want to take a break. I'm tired of this tech. I need to take a break. And, and maybe I'll feel better if I could just get away from it. And they just white knuckle it. Like, okay, this is really hard and I'm bored. But let me try to get through the 30 days. They have a hard time making it through the 30 days because their mind's basically saying, why are we doing this? Right? <laughs> we're, just, we're just sitting here like, what's the point? Uh, if you don't have value-based activities that you're replacing the low quality with. If you don't have targets you care about that then going forward, you can use tech instrumentally to boost. If you don't have that core in place of this is what I'm all about, it's really hard to succeed with minimalism. So if you're doing it with someone else, especially uh, your family, a spouse, something like this, a girlfriend, boyfriend... Uh, it can actually be quite effective because now you can work together to answer some of these questions above the individual level. What's our family all about? What do we want to do as a couple? What's our vision for what our life should be like? And once you start dealing with these value-driven ideas and visions, you can really foster a lot of really powerful change. But if you don't have that foundation and you're just coming from a place of, I think I look at Twitter too much, I kind of want to get away from it, you'd be surprised how difficult it is. It, It really takes a strong foundation if you're going to succeed in building up a new life. I was on the beach
0: in Jamaica last week, and this reminds me of the lady that was laying, you know, she was kind of a couple of chairs over from me. I was doing my think week. And she was talking to her partner on ha- about how she has no time to read any books. But she was on her phone pretty much the entire time you know i feel like people but you know we're not always aware that we do these things you know so i think it's it's so valuable just to allow you to step back from your behavior when you're so embedded within it um so so the steps of a detox choose the things that you want to abstain from uh choose the things that you want to sort of modify in a way like you'll check email only a few times you'll batch check text messages and then replace them uh, choose things to to replace them, the valuable activities. Would you say that's that's a fair summation of, of what it is?
1: Yeah. I mean, you could think about it as like a period of self-discovery and experimentation. So you're doing a lot of reflection, like, what do I care about? That's not an easy question. And you experiment with different activities. Like, well, let me do this. Like you're talking about, you signed up for improv. You got the painting supplies back out of the closet. A lot of that going on. And just get yourself a reacquainted with sort of higher barrier to entry, but higher quality activities, the type of stuff you would have done 20 years ago when there wasn't anything good on TV. Saturday afternoon, there's something on TV, what are you going to do? <laughs> the, type of, the type of way you would answer that question, Like those are the type of activities you should be experimenting with. Um, so that's right. Mm-hmm. And that's what you do during the 30 days. And then the final aspect is when you're done, it's a blank slate. Right, you have the high threshold. If I want to let something back in, it has to pass a high threshold. It's not just returning to what you took, you stepped away from.
0: Mm. I love that. So, so you don't have social media, but I'm guessing there's a few digital distractions that that you personally find hard to resist. Because unless unless you've achieved some godlike status in in resisting distractions, are, are there any that still trip you up after all this
1: experimentation, after all of this research? Well, things will slip in. That's usually how it goes for me, right? So, so I've never had a social media account, and that helps. Uh, and a long time ago, I sort of weaned myself off of a web surfing habit. So, I, I don't like this idea of having a stable of sites to cycle through. The same three or four loop, apps. exactly. Right. So, so I, I don't, uh, I don't entertain myself with the internet that much. So that's helpful. And and so what'll happen is things will slip in, and then I'll realize it. Uh, so baseball trade rumors is a big thing with me. If there's something going on with my team, you know, and there's breaking news coming. You're on it. I'm on it. And I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> it sneaks in there. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, things like that will happen. Um, maybe there's a big political thing going on. I mean, anytime there's, a, there's like a big... Never, ne- never. <laughs> in Washington, D.C., occasionally things happen here where I live. Occasionally things happen. Um, and, and so these things will slip back in. And then I'll notice. And I'll say, okay, I got to get away from that. Mm. But, but once you become aware, like that, that awareness seems to be key. The awareness is key. Yeah. Uh, just like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the knee-jerk. Like, open the browser. If you hit a tab, uh, here's the question to ask. When, when you open up your computer to do something specific, are you, are you opening up three or four tabs first and doing a quick cycle through something? Like, that's something to be aware of. I
0: type the letter N and then it immediately goes to the new york times
1: yeah are you doing yeah in new york times enter <laughs> look at the headlines then you know twitter yeah. enter you
0: know. do a glance and then i enable freedom and then i get a lot of time back <laughs> But but it's it's good to know that you know it, you know there there is that sort of maintenance mode after this digital decluttering where you know the occasional distraction will seep in but but you're able to you know use that awareness and that newfound space and clarity to notice it in the first place. So.
1: A lot of people use Freedom periodically. So Freedom for you know your listeners who don't know it's it's an internet blocking software essentially. So you can you can block various apps and sites. Uh, for set amounts of time. And I I, I love the software. And and something I've noticed is that people who use it successfully, it's not that they always use it. It's like a training tool. And so if they find there's a certain type of, I don't know, New York Times during a a period of political upheaval or something, something they're checking too much, they'll turn on freedom. And so uh, they can't check it when they're supposed to be working and they essentially lose the taste for it. And then they don't need freedom anymore. But then something else comes along. It's like, okay, we got to get the treadmill back out of the closet. So it's interesting to see that a lot of people, it's like periodic cardio training or something like that. Oh, we got to bring out the internet blocker. <laughs> Yeah. I I
0: personally only use it when I write because I find that writing is the most aversive thing that I could be doing. And usually there isn't a really pressing deadline. It's for a blog article. It's it's for something that isn't uh, immediate or it's for a book deadline that's way, way off. And so I just, I'll just check out the times. But then again, that awareness comes in and you think, oh crap, I'm wasting a lot of time and attention here that I could be. So I enable freedom and then all is good in the world. Again, what, what, one final question for you, Cal, that I, I like to end all well. I say I like to end, but this is the first episode of the show, so I appreciate you, you coming on. Uh, but one question that I am going to end every episode with is uh, what is one thing you're working on becoming better at right now?
1: Well, at the moment, for example, you know, I'm working on a new book and a skill within the writing arena that I want to add you know, to my, my toolbox of skills is getting better at journalistic style reporting. Um, and so I'm working on it and I'm actually, I'm actually practicing. So, you know, being able to do more, I'm tracking down original sources, uh, reporting in person on interesting people and interesting things, as opposed to just dealing in the world of ideas and published research. And so that's, I'm having a lot of fun you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting people on the phone. I'm, you know, setting up, setting up interviews. I'm I'm going to a few places. Um, I, I'm working on a couple articles now for publications that are large enough to have travel budgets. And so uh, it's fun. It's hard, but it's, it's like a, a new skill and I've been working on it and I uh, having a good time doing it. That sounds fun. Th- Cal
0: Newport. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Where, where can people learn more about you and, your work if they don't well, I am pretty sure like you, you know, at the end of shows, people say, Oh, you can pick up my book. Everybody knows where they can pick up a book. You can pick up digital minimalism and cal's other books, um, So Good They Can't Ignore You, Deep Work, wherever books and audiobooks
1: and digital books are sold, uh, where can people find more about you? Well, calnewport.com is a website where I'm a big blog nerd. I've been blogging there for over a decade. And so if if you wanna if you want to take a quick dive into the the oddities of the mind decal, uh, oh boy, there's a lot of stuff there for you to swim through. So that, that's always fun.
0: That's
1: awesome. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Chris. My pleasure.
0: So the plan is to end each episode of Becoming Better with a few practical, tactical things that you can do right away. And th- there are countless of them that were in this conversation with Cal, but there are a few that I particularly want to highlight. The first, uh, notice what few tabs you open up. Whenever you open up a new web browser window on your computer or whenever you uh, pick up your phone, You know what few apps do you cycle through? When you launch a new uh, window in, in Google Chrome or uh, Firefox or uh, whatever the Microsoft one is, Microsoft Edge. Uh, do you go to check the news? Do you check Twitter, Facebook before you do anything else? Uh, second, download Freedom. Freedom is it, it's an incredible application that blocks distractions. And so if you find that you're going through a period, as I sometimes do when I'm writing or doing anything averse, frankly, uh, that, that you want to check distractions more than usual, enable Freedom for that amount of time, for when you do that aversive work. The final one that I love from the book is a digital declutter. Uh, the latest research shows that it takes about eight days to adjust downward into uh, making our mind a bit less stimulated and distracted. And, and so use that to your advantage. You know, you'll, you'll get uh, anxious at the beginning of your digital declutter, uh, for about a week, but after that, you begin to clear a bend, and you're able to focus that much more deeply. You know, it takes us about eight days to adjust downward into a uh, into a new level of calmness on a vacation, for an example. So ju- keep that in mind, but choose uh, some things to eliminate, some things to modify, and things to replace those things with. And so you might, you might get rid of Twitter, you might get rid of YouTube on your phone. Um, you know, choose things to replace those with, um, such as an improv class, like uh, like a, you know learning an instrument, and as Cal says, uh, choose things that have a quote high barrier to entry, uh, but high quality activities at the same time. My co-host and I uh, for this show, will uh, we're, we're doing this right now. We're in the middle of our digital declutter and we'll chat about how it goes next episode, if it actually works, um, what what we learned on the very next show. Um, and y- you can do this too. Let me know how it goes. Chris at alifeofproductivity.com. Uh, we'll share a few of your thoughts on the next episode. Maybe you've done this already. Maybe you've done this in the past. Maybe it worked. Maybe it didn't. Uh, if you've done one or you're thinking of doing one, uh, please shoot us an email. So becomingbettershow.com is where you can find the corresponding blog article for this episode. Please review the show uh, on Apple Podcasts and wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. It helps new people find the show. Um, We've already gone over time just just a couple minutes, but I, I think it was worth it for this inaugural episode. We'll rein it in on subsequent episodes after this one. But thank you so much for listening making it through to the end and have a wonderful week we'll see you in a couple tuesdays